You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets, episode 27. And we have a good show today. I talk about tons of stuff here, like always. And let's see. Let's just give you a little sneak peek. We talk about the China panic, fake China panic. We talk about uh, risk happens fast and examine like um, the Swiss franc currency debacle, how Bitcoin is getting into mainstream discussions with investors and all that stuff being compared to gold by mainstream people as a safe haven play. In Altcoinville, I, I do a little bit different here in Altcoinville today. I go through different altcoins after I talk about some of the major developments in Ethereum. Uh, in the featured article, we have we talk about India, what's happening there with their banning of the 500 and the 1,000 uh, rupee notes. Well, not banning, but replacing. <clears throat> and Flashpoint, just talking about the shift from west to east. Now, I have... The new website is up, really going all out on these show notes. So if you guys t- go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com, go to the this post and uh, for this podcast and find the show notes and see what you guys think. I put in tons of charts, tons of information there, and it's it. I like it. I think it looks really good. Um, I think that you know if I always try to do like if I'm a listener to a podcast, what would I like to see in some show notes? You know, I don't want just links. I want a little bit of explanation. So I, especially if I see a longer podcast, right, that's like two hours long, I want to know kind of the breakdown of this and see if I can uh, go to certain parts that I like um, and also have links to everything they talk about so I can do my own research because I think that's that's very important. Let's get into just a market update. So on Bitstamp right now, Bitcoin is 702. We had a big jump up after the or during the elections, just like the stock markets had. They gapped down, uh, you know, overnight uh, for the U.S. stock exchanges uh, and they recovered very quickly. The same has kind of happened to Bitcoin. So it shot up and now it's back down again, but it's it's holding steady right around 700. And we'll see if it can break through. We need to, uh, you know, we've been up to the 720 level and the 740 level now within the last week. So uh, are we going to be able to get up and get to that uh, recent high from June and pass that? It's probably coming. We'll see. The news cycle right now is kind of in a hangover mode from the Trump victory. So we'll see what happens uh, financially here in the next week in the world. It could, it could, um, continue its uptrend pretty quickly okay on okay coin we have 400 or sorry 4837 yuan local bitcoin weekly volume is hitting all-time highs it's at 16.6 million for a weekly volume now the bitcoin volume has gone down slightly but that's because the bitcoin price has gone up but the overall value of bitcoin traded on local bitcoins has gone up now the bitcoin network volume uh, dollar volume is 65.1 million over the last 24 hours, and that local Bitcoin's volume was in dollars as well. 
Now, the difficulty, if you guys remember from, if you go back and listen to my last podcast, I did a similar section to this, and I talked that, okay, it looks like it's going to go up a little bit in the next uh, difficulty adjustment, which it did. It went up, it still went up almost half a percent, which isn't a ton when you consider Bitcoin, uh, but I did say there that I think the next one is going to go up dramatically, and that's what we're seeing right here. The estimated difficulty for... We're five days away right now for the next difficulty adjustment, and it's almost 8%, plus 7.93%. I mean, it just skyrocketed. Uh, okay, SegWit numbers and unlimited numbers. Oh, this is the big battle going raging still. Uh, SegWit is at 25.3%. Of all nodes on the network, SegWit is getting there. And we have, let's see, I'll publish this on the 12th. So uh, three days until voting st starts on the blockchain. Um, so we still have a little bit of time that, and who knows, maybe they're holding their cars close to their chest still. And, and right when this comes out, we'll see a bunch of SegWit blocks. Unlimited has been more resilient than I thought. I'll give them that, but they are still sitting at only 10.9%. And who knows what's going to happen, uh, in the next week. We'll see. I think there could be some shenanigans, you know, like DDoSing uh, the unlimited nodes. They, they did that in the past to the classic nodes. Uh, people, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. You have to be ready. If you're playing by these tactics, you have to be ready for uh, reciprocation. And for all of these numbers, I have links in the show notes. So I have the sources to all this stuff and a nice little table there for you guys. All right, let's get in the main parts of the show. Hit it. Bits and pieces. I want to start off this section by thanking a couple listeners that have sent in links to me. Um, I appreciate you guys uh, taking an active role in the show and uh, telling me what you want to hear about. So um, the first one is from Bloomberg, and it's titled Bitcoin's At It Again. It, it seems like it's going to start off as a pretty good story. <laughs> uh, mainstream news outlet Bloomberg and it's by Christopher Langner it starts off with this um, it's happening again Bitcoin has lockstepped with gold and taken to the skies as uncertainty about the US election increases volatility in global markets it is in short acting as a haven okay so that that sounds really good they have a chart here that shows kind of Bitcoin and gold go moving together Bitcoin obviously more volatile um, but in the same direction, <laughs> that then it gets bad, okay? And it says, um, Bitcoin is quickly becoming a thing of the past. Uh, as Bloomberg views, Elaine O pointed out this week, some of the newest cryptocurrencies such as Zcash and Monero have gained popularity fast because unlike Bitcoin, they offer the ability to keep transactions confidential. No, they can't even say the word privacy. <laughs> They have to use the word confidential because, oh, if you tell somebody that these things are uh, private by default, then they'll be much more popular, obviously, than they are. But also that you can't, these people can't even admit that people want privacy. That is a taboo word. They have to go around it and use the word confidential. But you can obviously see that, okay, Zcash, nobody uses it. Monero, 
Maybe a couple hundred people use it. There is no competition whatsoever between Bitcoin, Zcash, and Monero. I mean, between Zcash and Monero, yeah, there's probably some competition there. And I, I, my opinion, well, I, I'll talk about that a little bit in the altcoinville, but I think that, uh, you know, Monero is going to come out eventually on top, uh, of that battle there. Okay. Let me read on a little bit more. <laughs> oh, God. Aside from facing obsolescence and the threat of competing with actual currencies, the volatility of Bitcoin has to be off-putting for serious investors. During any given period, the digital currency swings three to five times more violently than gold, hardly the behavior expected from a haven asset. If all of that weren't enough reason to look elsewhere for investment to fall back on, in an event of a market sell-off, the performance of Bitcoin after Brexit should be. In the two weeks that ensued the vote, gold rallied 8.2%, while Bitcoin moved a measly 1.3% higher. So, first it's more volatile, then it's less volatile. Conflicting criticisms. <laughs> it's so crazy. So anyway, this this was a puff piece. They're scared. And it's starting to show where, you know, they're scared of gold and Bitcoin, obviously. And Bitcoin is explo much more explosive than gold is. I think in the long run, we're talking 20 years down the road, uh, Bitcoin will be viewed as the better asset to hold, uh, even than gold. But, um, yeah, they're scared. They're trying to just put all of these puff pieces out because, you know, um, it's the marginal person. Their, their target is a marginal person. So if, if you're already in Bitcoin, this is not aimed towards you. This is aimed towards the people that, you know, they're starting to get curious and they'll click on some links from some major news people and they'll be swayed against. And then they'll see, oh, well, Zcash and Monero and Bitcoin. Oh man, there's competition. No one knows exactly what's, who's the winner or what's the best one. I'm going to sit out. I'm just going to, you know, check back in a year. So that's their target audience here with this stuff. Um, it's important for us that know the truth about Bitcoin and the, the markets, the cryptocurrency markets out there to say exactly what's going on because, uh, we are fighting against these mainstream people. So the more content we can put out there, um, the more support we can, um, push out there. Um, but that, that's very important to, uh, fight this kind of misinformation. It, it's just social engineering, bottom line. All right, next story we have also sent in from a listener is from Bitcoin Magazine, how segregated witness is about to fix hardware wallets. Um, I don't really have too much to say about segregated witness uh, other than, you know, voting starts on the 15th of November, and that's the voting I care about. I don't, I didn't vote in this, uh, presidential election. I don't care who wins. They're all liars. Uh, they're all a bunch of campaign promises. Nobody cares. Plus, in the first place, um, it, they're illegitimate because I didn't, even if I vote for some guy, some other person doesn't vote for them. And I can't give somebody power to, um, take another person's property away, an innocent individual. I have no say in that. Um, okay, and 
getting back to this article, it's by Aaron Van Verden, who I really, really enjoy his pieces. I think he does great research. He does great um, interviews with people. But this article, again, is how segregated witness is about to fix our hardware wallets. And um, I think it's great. I mean, he talks to the Ledger CTO. He talks to the quote-unquote architect behind the Trezor. Um, and they, you know, they say that, okay, the main, the main problem is, uh, when do you sign your transaction? Can, because, uh, hardware wallets have to worry about this Trojan horse or malware on the, on the device somehow, and it adds inputs to the transaction that you don't necessarily want, and you can't necessarily see, uh, when you're signing things. Um, and, what he says about segregated witness uh, is that segregated witness fixes that bug in hardware wallets and makes it much, much uh, more easy to provide security. Uh, segregated witness, it's called a fee attack, by the way. Um, segregated witness is not just a scaling solution. It is a solution for all sorts of other things and fixes all sorts of these little bugs out there. One of the main uh, arguments against segregated witness right now is that um, it is too complex. It is um, uh, needlessly complex. I I doubt that. The problem is that these people making those claims are not smart enough to understand it. And Bitcoin is quickly, quickly approaching this stage where... um, it is so complex, the inner workings, the incentive structure, the economics, the co- like uh, game theory is so complex that it can't be learned in an afternoon or in a month. It takes years of study to understand what's going on and to make small changes that won't affect the whole thing. There's an idea of code ossification, right, where it becomes harder and harder to change as time goes on, and um, we're reaching that point right now. It, 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 the reason why it becomes harder to change is that exact reason, because it takes so long to understand it, and also that it's being used in all sorts of apps and things, and so um, you can't get these changes adopted because it will affect the apps that are already running. So that's just like Ethereum. The easier it is to fork, that means you know immediately that it's not used by anything. It has zero uh, ossification, and it, it just... If people want it to fork a million times, hard fork a million times, well, that means that you're not going to use it in anything. Anyways, um, so yeah, segregated witness is great. Uh, I, I have, uh, noticed in the last couple days that Bitcoin Unlimited is, uh, gaining a few more blocks. And you can check that at coin.dance forward slash blocks. Uh, now coin dance, they, they supported, uh, Bitcoin Classic, and they seem to be supporting Bitcoin Unlimited to to a degree. They have a lot of great information, so I like them for the information. But they're a little bit skewed, just a little bit skewed towards that. You can tell they're skewed towards that uh, side. There's other places you, I think, on uh, what is it, twenty one dot co or Bitnodes. 
I think it's bitnodes.com. Uh, you can get some information on the uptake on segregated witness and Bitcoin Unlimited. So there is other sources out there. Uh, but coin.dance, they have great, great charts and, uh, graphs and stuff. So I like that site. Okay. Yeah. Bitcoin Unlimited is, um, not dying as quickly as I thought, but who knows? Let's see what happens on November 15th. If it takes a dive, um, I'm sure that the 13.1 numbers are going to skyrocket. That's the, the segwit are going to skyrocket on that date. So we will see. And Unlimited will slowly but surely die off, just like Classic did, whatever. But remember, most of these trolls out there uh, on Reddit and, uh, you know, RBTC and uh, on Twitter, they they don't have nodes. They're not miners. Um, if we can uh, convince people that via BTC and Roger Ver are acting contrary to those people's self-interest. They will uh, then apply pressure to Ver and to via BTC. So uh, let's see where this goes. I don't know if that's possible, but I mean, most of those trolls out there, they don't matter because they don't run nodes anyway. I think one of the best ways to actually go about this is just to say, you don't know how Seg SegWit works. You don't know how Bitcoin works. What are your qualifications? Why should we believe you? Um, and that, that is, that's a way to go about disproving or dispelling these guys' concerns, uh, applying pressure to them to actually learn about Bitcoin and SegWit. <sighs> okay. That, that's about all for this story. Thanks listeners for sending in stuff. Let's get on to the next set of stories. All right, the next set of stories is how Bitcoin is entering mainstream discussions about investing and banking. And it's coming on hot and heavy. A lot of people are starting to question the whole blockchain story. And so they're, they're shifting away. Investors are looking at Bitcoin. It's not, Bitcoin isn't going away. It's in a slow, steady bull trend. If you look at all the past bull markets in Bitcoin, where it went up 30x, right, or uh, 20x. Bitcoin is shot up. If you look at the weekly chart, it took like four weeks to complete it up to 10x or 20x. I don't think that's going to happen again. Uh, I think it's just going to stair step its way up and each time maybe a 2x jump and then spend a few months consolidating and then a 2x jump and then a few months consolidating. So, um, yeah, the, people are seeing this. The economy is getting more mature. There's more products out there. There's more liquidity. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just going to keep going and people are taking notice. So these stories here, this first one is from forexnow.com. I don't know how great of a website this is. This is a pretty good article here. Um, and I'll just read a few things here. Bitcoin's breakthrough may have created an investment opportunity outside of traditional currencies for brokers and forex traders. Although many people are still skeptical of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, a growing number of monetary regulators are now showing interest in digital currencies and they could someday replace traditional notes and that have been the medium of transaction for ages. Bitcoin, the world's most pro 
prominent cryptocurrency is now commanding a market value of more than $10 billion, has inspired many different versions of digital currencies. Litecoin, which describes itself as silver if Bitcoin is gold, is another successful cryptocurrency or altcoin. Litecoin boasts a market value of $190 million and commands a substantial price to the dollar, with Litecoin USD trading above 4. Litecoin claims transactions on its network are faster than on Bitcoin's network. Alright, so that's some good information. It's pretty good information for being on a uh, kind of a mainstream Forex site, I guess. In the UK, the Bank of England has set up a team to do the cryptocurrency to do the cryptocurrency homework. Among other things, the team is researching what a digital currency issued and controlled by a central bank could do to the economy. The altcoins existing today are not regulated and are thriving mainly in a peer to in peer to peer transactions. Cutting out commercial banks. However, central bank issued cryptocurrencies could dilute the role of commercial banks as middlemen in money circulation. For instance, the Bank of England is exploring a radical cryptocurrency deployment option where citizens could directly hold bank accounts with the central bank. That would remove private banks from money circulation, from the money circulation equation. UK banks are reportedly pushing back against the option. However, that doesn't mean that private banks do not see opportunity in the rise of digital currencies. For instance, widespread adoption of cryptocurrencies could help banks cut their costs of operations, especially expenses related to moving hard cash around. <laughs> okay, so they're wrong here. Um, it's understandable because there's a lot of misinformation, but um, you, there are no cut cuts in the cost of their operations. That's, that cannot happen with cryptocurrencies um, they are exploring radical cryptocurrency deployment in the U in the uk and that is one of my next stories here um, the banks are reportedly pushing back against the option because commercial banks are under siege right commercial banks are those deposits the they take deposits and they give loans locally or regionally um, and they are the ones that are under attack any bank that takes deposits, those are the ones under attack. The credit card companies, you know, the credit card banks, they don't care because credit cards are still the premier solution for what they do, and they charge you interest on using that credit. Um, but the commercial banks where they take deposits and, and your direct deposits and, and things like that, those ones, those are the banks that are under attack. Those are the first ones that are going to be killed by... Um, any sort of government cryptocurrency, which can't happen, and also by Bitcoin. At least they know the risks. All right, last thing, blessing for them back. Some analysts have pointed out that the rise of digital currencies and the involvement of global central banks could be a blessing for emerging economies. One of the potential benefits is increased access to financial services in regions of the world where billions of people still lack bank accounts. Digital currency transa transactions can be done on the phone without requiring a bank account. Given the deepening mobile phone and smartphone penetration in major regions around the world, it could be easier for populations to access digital financial services in places where banks have not have uh, do not have outlets. Okay, great. That sounds good, but banks aren't going to be the ones that provide those services because they're going to have to KYC all those people. And if, if you're a Dinka living in Somalia that doesn't really have an identity, 
are you going to do your KYC with freaking the Bank of England or with Santander? I don't think so. I don't think you are. I don't think you can. So, yeah, uh, these banks, they are stuck. That's the regulatory prison argument, and they can't get out of it. All right, next one is Bitcoin is getting some attention as part of a diversified portfolio, and this is from equities.com. Let me pull this up here. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, equities.com. It's a story by Roslyn Capital, and they have in the past written about Bitcoin. They they probably uh, promote having Bitcoin as part of your portfolio. Obviously, this story looks pretty favorable. Um, what I liked about it was this chart. They have an infographic. The top 10 traits of popular investments, and they have just gold, dollar, and Bitcoin. Then the traits they have are all those money traits, you know, scarcity, fungibility, liquidity, durability. But they also added in um, spendability at the bottom, longevity, a couple things that you don't usually see. But I just want to run through a couple of these real quick because I think that it's important to point out the thinking of these people and to understand uh, their thought process. Okay, so scarcity, the very top one which is a huge, huge, huge thing to me, is digital scarcity was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, um, and uh, that is going to replace the physical scarcity of, say, gold. But, all right, so um, gold is said to have high scarcity, Bitcoin moderate, and the dollar low. Um, the dollar is obviously low. Gold, I would say, and Bitcoin should be swapped. So gold has moderate scarcity, and Bitcoin has high it has ultimate scarcity. The supply uh, curve of Bitcoin is directly straight up and down. It is inelastic, 100% inelastic. Um, of course, you mine new Bitcoins every 10 minutes, but it doesn't matter if the price goes up to 10,000. You can put, you can make the mining, the hash rate of the network go up a thousand times and they will still be a block mined every 10 minutes. You cannot change the issuance. But with gold, if the price of gold goes up to $10,000 for an ounce, people will go to those more expensive veins of gold that they know that where they're there or they uh, will do some more exploration and they'll find new deposits of gold. Maybe they'll start, you know, distilling or mining gold out of the oceans. They say there's just as much gold in the oceans as there is above ground gold on the world in the world today. So maybe they'll start taking it out of the oceans. I don't know. So the, the price as gold price goes up, the supply can increase. It's a, stock flow type thing and uh true that the the amount of bitcoin mining can only you know realistically it'll go at five percent or something like that but that's still way more than bitcoin so gold would be moderate and also as the price goes up people will sell their gold chains and the the amount of investable silver out there will go up drastically 
So the scarcity of gold is moderate and the scarcity of Bitcoin is high. Uh, let's see, what's some other ones here? Um, oh, yes, this one, liquidity. They say the liquidity of gold is high as well as the liquidity of dollar, but the liquidity of Bitcoin is low. Now, I, I'll agree with the liquidity of Bitcoin being low, but I believe, and I'm going to make an argument here, that the liquidity of Bitcoin is higher than gold. Because, okay, the liquidity of paper gold is very high. That is true. But that is not gold. Tell that to the people that have, you know, the 5,000 to 1 contracts on Comex. Or Comex, whatever. They, uh, so for every ounce that Comex has, there, there's something like 500 claims on that one ounce of gold. They've rehypothecated it. 500 times. So the liquidity of that gold is very low. The liquidity of the paper is high. And plus, like the the link in my last show, episode 26, that where that guy is on the street, Mark Dice, he's on the street trying to sell his gold coin for $20 and nobody will take it. And he's standing right outside of a gold shop. He's like, you could take it in there and see maybe you profit from this deal. And these people said no, not a single person. Some person, one person, yeah, like got down to five dollars, and they they were saying no to a one ounce gold coin. The liquidity of actual gold is damn near zero. Period. Dot. End of story. The liquidity of gold is fucking zero. The liquidity of a ton of gold is much higher than the liquidity of an ounce of gold which should tell you something. Uh, and which one is going to go up? Uh, they probably will meet in the middle in the future. It'll be harder to sell a ton or sell a, a kilo of gold. But it will be easier to sell an ounce. But they will never be extremely high ever again. That's that's my opinion. It, it's... <laughs> uh, anyways, okay. Uh, let's see what we got. Volatility, scarcity, or no, sorry, security. They they do say the security of Bitcoin is high, and the security of U.S. dollars and gold are moderate. I would okay, I can buy that. Portability, they look that looks pretty good. Divisibility looks pretty good. Spendability, okay, that goes into the liquidity uh, and the spendability. Of these things, they say gold spendability is moderate. How the fuck can they say the spendability of gold is moderate? You cannot spend it. It is unspendable. The only thing there is limited ability to buy dollars, but you cannot buy anything else. Period. At least in the larger economy. You might find some people in your city, like some other gold bugs around, you know, in the libertarian uh, groups that might do trade in silver and gold. Okay, great. The same way you can find those people that are still accepting Doge. But uh, the spendability of gold is zero. 
Bitcoin is moderate, I would say. Um, I, I, I have tried purse out recently. If you guys haven't tried purse, you should. Uh, let's see if I can get an affiliate link for that. Purse is pretty good. Uh, I used it to buy a computer. So if you're going to make a large purchase on Amazon, you know, a couple hundred bucks or whatever, then I would go through purse because you can save freaking 30% pretty easily. I found that around 27 to 29% is when it starts getting harder. And what, and if you do put 30% in there, then it's much harder to get that. You might have to wait several days until someone picks that up. Uh, but you can easily save 25% off every single purchase on Amazon. So if, if you're buying a laptop for a thousand, you're going to save 250 bucks. That's significant. And I just use, you know, uh, or uh, right when I use my Bitcoin, I buy the replacement Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm saving that money uh, immediately. All right, so if you want to use Purse, check out my referral link in the show notes. You can help support the show. Uh, after you spend 50 bucks, then I get a little bit of a reward there. So yeah, the Bitcoin spendability is much higher than the spendability of gold. And you know, there is no, there is no apparent path for gold to become more spendable. Right, like people actually would have to accept the gold and then use that gold for their purchases much harder. But see, with Bitcoin, you can obfuscate that by using services like Purse. So you can use your Bitcoin and you don't have to meet this person face to face. If there's some big whale, say in India, that's trying to buy up a million dollars with Bitcoin, they can do that through other services. They can get it from everywhere in the world. So that one whale can provide demand for a huge service like Purse, say, for many, many people to use their Bitcoin. But it's very hard to do that with physical gold, right? Because um, it's just a much harder problem. There's, there's not a clear path forward for gold like that. <laughs> um, this I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, TechCrunch had an article. This is just from a couple days ago, and it's almost as if they've been listening to this podcast. Uh, how Bitcoin protects against geopolitical risk. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this. Bitcoin's advantage. Digital currencies like Bitcoin were built from the ground up and designed for an era of information. That is exactly what I have said on this show in the past. You know, that's my argument against gold and against dollars, really, um, and for Bitcoin, is that it's digital scarcity. It was built for the Internet. It harnesses the Internet, and it uses the Internet in its favor, where gold is restricted by its physical nature. We don't have transporters to transport gold over the Internet. It is a barrier. It necessitates you using a trusted third party. And there's counterparty risk, where there's no counterparty risk with Bitcoin if you use it properly. And that's coming. It's, it's harder to do that exactly today, but that's, that's coming. Bitcoin was built for the internet. Gold was not. And so it's almost like this tech crunch was, 
listening to this podcast. Importantly, Bitcoin is a global digital currency that is borderless, frictionless, and secure. Unlike legacy currencies and payment systems, Bitcoin is immune to capital controls and currency manipulation. It does not limit people's freedom to move money to where they want it to be and cannot be controlled by governments for their political agenda. Most of all, it is well insulated from national political uncertainty that might cause aggressive fluctuations in other traditional currencies. Damn, these guys are awesome. Anyway, check out this article. I mean, TechCrunch, who knows how accurate all their stuff is, but this is straight out of this podcast. A lot of this stuff I've, I've mentioned in the past, um, so maybe, maybe they listen to me. Just talking about the crazy markets we we're in right now, I have a couple links for this section here. The Fang, you know, you guys know what the Fang is. That's a, on the stock market. You have Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Uh, since the end of 2014, I think December 30. Yeah, December 31st. So the end of the year of 2014 to today, the Fang stocks have are they're responsible for nine over 90% of the market cap gains of the S&P 500 companies. So the Fang companies since the end of 2014, they've their market caps, their collective market caps have gone up 640 billion dollars. Where the rest of the entire S&P 500 has gone up only 42 billion dollars so that that's a systemic risk if you ask me right and we we've seen the too big to fail from the banks these are the too big to fail you know just from a stock perspective okay because the the whole stock market will just crash if one of these these companies crashes next the website capitalistexploits.at, obviously a link in the show notes. Let me bring that up. The title of it is Risk Happens Fast. And I've been saying this for a long time, that it hap uh, collapse happens little by little and then all at once. This is kind of like a refutation, a little bit of the efficient market hypothesis. Um, because risk builds up, right? Risk builds up. And if you can, if you are able to see this, this risk building up, then you can predict the future. For example, the, the main one that they use here is the Swiss franc. So it was pegged to the euro and they were spending millions and millions of euros to keep this peg stable when the Swiss franc really wanted to devalue. Let me see the numbers here. So for, I think the peg was about 1.2. That's the peg that they wanted to, to keep, or maybe it was 1.25. Uh, so the Swiss franc was worth a little bit more than the euro for a long time. They were having a hard time keeping it there. I think they, you can kind of see from the charts over the years they have been slowly letting, doing their best to fight it, but they couldn't do it. And so they eventually decided to stop, to unpeg it and let it float. And what happened? It dropped from 1.2 over 30% in a, in like two minutes. 
a 30% move in a currency in two minutes. That is not efficient market. Um, obviously, people knew this. You could see this happening. You knew how expensive it was to keep this peg. People have been talking about re removing the peg. And eventually, you know, you can use your brain to know that very shortly or that this this can't last forever. Something has to happen. Something has to break and snap. And when it did, it snapped 30% in five minutes. So that that's a really good article here on uh, Capitalist Exploits. They... They do great stuff. I've been reading them for, I don't know, maybe two years or so. They have some good, good articles, good insights. They're international investors. That's their main thing. Uh, I think they're connected to Raul Paul. Is that his name? I think so. Yeah, check it out. Have you guys heard of or been to f the FinTechniques? dot com website it's pretty good i haven't been there before i saw it in a tweet from uh, what's his name eric Voorhees, and it was after this the most recent drop so we had this high um cut like last week or something on the price uh, which about that which was interesting to me was the dollar markets were quite a bit away from the june highs like maybe Forty dollars or thirty dollars away from the June highs. It got up to four forty or seven forty-five, and the June highs were uh, seven eighty-five something. So forty bucks. But the um, CNY highs were right up there with the June highs. I mean, almost overtook those June highs. Is that due to the um, dollar strengthening? Maybe. That, that very well could be, but, um, I thought it was interesting. And, and as these, as they work their way through some of these resistance zones, it's kind of interesting too to watch the dollar markets. Specifically, I've been watching Bitstamp that it obeys these, uh, horizontal resistance areas. And so you'll see times where the, the, the yen markets have broke through these resistance areas and the dollar markets are holding it up the price because they haven't broken through. Um, so, and, and vice versa sometimes too, but I've noticed that the dollar markets are more uh, resistant to breaking these uh, horizontal resistance areas. Anyways, um, this was a, what happened with this big drop from last week was a rumor that came out about the Chinese uh, government looking at regulating Bitcoin because of the capital flight. And my initial reaction to the Zero Hedge tweet about this article was, yeah, I don't think so. It, there's way too too many more things to worry about. There's bigger things to worry about for China than Bitcoin. And that uh, it's only a $10 billion market cap. Well, it turns out that my initial reaction was probably the correct one. I mean, no Chinese exchange came out and said anything about it. Samson Mao ended up coming out on Twitter saying, um, you know, it's not our responsibility to uh, dispel all FUD that comes out on the market. And it's turned out that Zero Hedge might have fabricated this entire thing. 
the sources that they claimed were like uh, the Bloomberg terminals. And the Bloomberg terminals, the only thing they had, people were putting screenshots and stuff. The only thing they had was the Zero Hedge article. So the Zero Hedge article was using itself as a source. Um, but uh, anyway, this FinTechniques, he breaks down why uh, this was complete FUD and it was a false panic. And it shakes out the weak hands, which I agree with. I think this is good. Uh, I mean, I didn't have a trade on, I don't think, at this time. Uh, but it, it does shake out the weak hands. He, he lists a few reasons that I would like to go into. But before I do that, I want to tell you about... Uh, this was maybe two years ago. So after the Mt. Gox debacle... Um, the months after that, when the most of the most of the um, volume was coming from China already, and with OKCoin okay and BTC China and those, and um, you know, Finex started in Hong Kong, so it's it was a Chinese exchange. It had Chinese investors. I think later on, maybe in 2015, it moved over to the UK for headquarters, but it, it started over there in Hong Kong, um, and so they had most of the volume. Um, but when I looked at the blockchain, this is before the blocks were full and you had this heartbeat to the blockchain, you could see that most of, um, the blockchain volume was happening during Western daylight hours. And then it would, the volume would decrease at least 10% during the Chinese daytime hours. So the, even though the volume was on the Chinese exchanges, my conclusion was that it was still westerners trading there and that's still probably westerners today i mean it could be western whales doing most of the trading over there uh, but he this guy on fintechniques he outlines a few things um here i just want to quickly go through them uh, chinese uh, china's government has never been pro or anti-bitcoin and it doesn't really care uh about it as much as people pretend he mentions that china purchased a purchased about 800 billion dollars in ruble debt ruble bonds that were paying 18 percent interest and uh, they don't give a rip about bitcoin when you're making 18 percent interest a year on 800 billion dollars in current in a currency that is appreciating so the the ruble has gone up 70 percent since they bought this and they're getting 18 percent interest they don't care anything about bitcoin they also have been investing in or they bought oil when it was low gold when it was low numerous other commodities and they're now starting to invest in nuclear energy that is down over 95 percent in recent history so why does bitcoin or why does china even care about bitcoin it doesn't all right next thing he has here is Number two, China is not devaluing their currency, and people have been wrong about this both last year and this year. Um, yes, the the dollar is getting stronger. It's getting stronger against the euro. It's getting stronger against um, the yuan. It's not really getting much stronger against the yen, uh, except in the past couple months it has been. But uh, the dollar is getting stronger. It's not that the yuan is getting weaker uh, they they stopped the peg to the dollar just like the swiss franc did because it's expensive to keep that in place 
So as the dollar goes up and the yuan keeps going down, people shouldn't be saying that the yuan is devaluing. They just happen to have a, a fix every day or every week or whatever that kind of formalizes the process. But it's not them devaluing. It's the, the dollar getting stronger because people expect rate increases, which aren't coming. So there's going to be a massive reset in that respect. Okay, um, so he has that. Number three, most Bitcoin's growth this year has not been in China. While a popular lie, I've been tracking Chinese volume for a few years, and I'm seeing well within the bell curve of normal growth. Uh, Bitcoin has grown in India, Venezuela, Egypt, among other countries this year above normal. In addition, just because someone buys a Bitcoin in Yuan doesn't mean they're Chinese. I've bought Bitcoin with Yuan, and I'm not Chinese. While this is obvious to smart readers, some really miss the point. If you have Bitcoins on a Chinese exchange, then you can swap both. When ignorant Bitcoin users don't know why Bitcoin increases in value, they scream, China! Uh, and then he goes on to say that it's mainly infrastructure and stuff, uh, introducing it to these emerging economies, not China. Okay, number four, why hasn't the Chinese media exchanges and government not been all over this news? Uh, as of this post, nothing from BTCC, nothing from OKCoin, and nothing from Huboy has been posted about this. So considering that they're the biggest over there, they should have said something. Exactly. This is all FUD by uh, Zero Hedge, and that makes me uh, question a lot of stuff that they put out. Um, anyway. I think Zero Hedge has gone downhill a little bit. I, you know, I've read it probably since about 2010. Um, and I, uh, I agreed with a lot of their, their write-ups. I, I liked their stories that they had, but in the last maybe year, it's gone downhill. I remember reading it and they had like maybe five articles a day and it was pretty quality stuff. And then last year sometime they started putting like 15, 20, 30 articles a day, just like a regular old uh, CNN or MSNBC website. And the the quality went down dramatically at that point. Anyway, interesting. Maybe you should add them to your bookmarks. The Fin Techniques, look in the show notes. It's spelled different, so look in the show notes for the uh, link. Last Bits and Pieces article is going to be polls, how bad the polls were in the elections. I didn't really want to talk about the elections because I don't care. I am not going to sell out and, you know, sell out half of the people in this country for some others. Plus, I saw the statistics of or numbers from this this voting and only 50% of people voted. That's pretty high, actually, because I think usually it's about 40%. But roughly 50% of people in the United States voted, eligible voters. And out of that 50%, you know, Donald Trump got half and Hillary Clinton got half. So the only 25% of eligible voters elected Donald Trump. I think it would be much more appropriate if you say you must get at least 50% of of uh, eligible voters that would be huge 
Because what if you can't get that? Well, we don't have a fucking president. Great. And I've been talking to my daughters about this election because, you know, they had like some election thing at school. And um, I was like, I don't want them as president. I want 300 million presidents in the United States. I want everyone to be their own president. Why should that president tell me that I can't eat a certain thing? Or that I can't build a certain thing? Or that I can't, you know, talk a certain way? I can't give money to who I want. I can't take money from who I want. You know, what? What? what's so great about this guy or gal? And so it, it, it's a good excuse to talk about things with my kids, but... Um, you know, if, if they didn't have their school and friends, they would never even know this stuff. Kids are born anarchists. They are. I know from experience that kids don't understand that other people have arbitrary power over them. They don't understand it with adults. The only way that kids get it in their heads most of the time that there is an arbitrary control over top of them is when they're beaten, when they're spanked. When they're degraded into submission. And that's the same fucking way with the public. I mean, well, once once parents break their kids, it's much easier for the government to come in and arbitrary, arbitrarily control them. But, uh, I mean, if, if your parents didn't break you, then the government would have to. And maybe that's why you see, like... Runaways and people that lost their parents when they were really young, uh, and living with grandparents because grandparents are usually, you know, a little bit more, uh, laissez faire with their grandkids. And, uh, so maybe you see some of those types of family situations ending up poorly, getting arrested more, getting in trouble. You know, like say your parents are drug addicts and they're just high all the time and they're taking care of you. Well, you don't have this arbitrary control mechanism built in because you haven't been broken. Um, and so you don't want to submit to this arbitrary control. So they have problems with the government, right? So it's kind of the job of the parent these days to break their kids. Break the will of the child because they are, everyone is born an anarchist. But anyway, what I wanted to talk about were, was these polls. Uh, the polls were so bad. So bad. And, you know, you saw that the polls were bad with the Brexit. At least they were close, right? I think they said like 52% or 53% for Remain. And then it turned out to be like 51% leave. So at least they were close. Within five points. But the polls for this Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump thing, it was like 65% for Hillary. And it turned out to be, what, about 55% for Donald Trump? Extremely wrong. Extre like, so, major standard deviations. I don't know how many. But uh, why was that? Or why is that? Why are these polls so bad? Uh, they're supposed to be scientific and get their stuff from big data. 
And Isabella Kaminska had a tweet that made me start thinking about this. Um, I mean, I've, I've noticed this obviously in the past and thought about it, but she kind of started me thinking on this the last couple of days. Uh, and then I've seen it by other people like, uh, Nassim Taleb, the black swan guy. He tweeted out something about polls, but polls are supposed to be scientific. They, they are valuable because they are supposed to tell us reality portray what the reality is out there but that's not what they're used for that's that's not what they are actually lies damn lies and statistics they are specific pointed lies built using this system of science as cover and i actually think it's more systemic than even that you know like the science is used as cover for these polls, but science is also used as cover for all sorts of shit, all sorts of bad stuff. Science is the cover. And how do we know what the science is? Well, we can trust, we can trust the CDC, the FDA. We can trust, uh, all these other organizations out there to vet the science, or we can use some freaking logic and test if these are right. We can be skeptical until we see actual proof of stuff. I think it's systemic. Science is a cover for social engineering. Science is a cover for corruption. Science is a cover for all of these other things. And in the polls, that's exactly what it is. They are pure social engineering. And when they fail, that's when they're so off. They've been failing recently with Brexit and the U.S. elections. These social engineering attempts have failed. That's when we notice it. When they're when they're right, like if Hillary would have won by sixty percent uh, with a sixty percent instead of sixty six, oh, we wouldn't really even notice it. We wouldn't question. Oh, the polls were basically right. But when it's complete opposite turnout, then we start questioning this and we notice these problems. Altcoin Bill. Altcoinville, Crazyville, uh, Ethereumville, whatever you want to call this. Uh, this is where I go through altcoins and talk about what's going on there. Uh, the first story I have is via Coindesk, and I'm glad I clicked on this one because I usually don't read anything on Coindesk, but the headline was really good. Ethereum bug sends smart contracts back to the drawing board. I'm glad I clicked on it because um, about, I don't know, five paragraphs in or whatever they quote me and this is what they say uh one observer on social media for example argued that it could be a mount a molehill on the side of a big mountain of similar issues (laughs) which is true (laughs) so that's what i said and um yeah there's a really good part in here that i want to read and i want to spend a few minutes uh talking about because i think it's really important and it's in the section called fixing the problem um, well, okay, let me let me start off by saying this is um, kind of a debrief of what happened with this whole Solidity uh, scripting bug that they found and that, you know, it was making smart contracts work differently than what they were programmed to be. 
And um, I said on the last episode, I don't know if they can fix this. I mean, is a simple patch going to fix it? Is a is it going to take a hard fork? I mean, how do you are they going to have to scrap the whole language and and start over, or, or what what's going to happen from this? Um, so I wanted to read this here. Fixing the problem. Programs written in Ethereum's higher level, easy to read languages such as Solidity or Serpent are compiled into byte level code before they are added to the blockchain. The problem here was with the technology doing the compiling. To fix the problem, uh, right, right Weissner, I think that's how you say it, uh, recommended that developers do two things. One, if compiling a new smart a uh, new contract, developers need to upgrade to the new version of Solidity to avoid the bug. Not all bugs, just the bug. Uh, okay, second, the second way to avoid the problem is the more curious example, since it requires upgrading or defunding smart contracts that are already deployed. Something you might not expect is possible with Ethereum. Well, of course... Aren't they supposed to be like immutable? I mean, these smart contracts are supposed to be autonomous, working on their own. What good is a smart contract that is not, uh, or that can be fiddled with, right? Wright Weissner elaborated on this advice, explaining that there are two types of contracts, centrally controlled, centrally controlled, centrally controlled, and decentralized, uh, where no one has special privileges. The first type probably refers to some upgrading mechanism or a way to remove funds from a contract. Okay. Centrally controlled smart contracts? Why? Why are they on Ethereum? Why? I mean, anybody worth anything that sees that should know that this is not worth anything. So yes, those are the ones that are now, uh, not a worry with this bug because they're centrally controlled. Just think you have some sort of legal smart contract or something like that. And you get a letter in the mail saying, stop that. And you have to stop it. There's nothing. There is no efficiency with a centrally controlled smart contract over like say a central third party contract. That's what centrally controlled means. It means that it is there's no reason to have a blockchain. So anyway, okay, so then the second type is trickier. That's the decentralized ones that you can't change. On the other hand, since trust, trustless Ethereum smart contracts can't be taken down or modified once they're deployed, there isn't a lot that developers can do if they didn't use a centrally or centralized smart contract from the beginning. <laughs> so it almost sounds like they're promoting you using these centralized smart contracts that don't need a blockchain. However, Wright Weissner said that developers can guard against future problems like those with Solidity by doing a couple of things. Now listen to this quote. This is the one that kind of set me over. My rec- quote, my recommendation for such contracts would be to either keep them short-lived so that potential bad effects are small or do a proper formal analysis of the bytecode of the contract. We are currently developing tools to help in doing that. He said, and that's about the decentralized contract. So he's saying, do a short, make it short lived because we can't fucking promise this shit ain't going to help uh, happen again in the future. We have no idea right now. We cannot guarantee that this is bug free for the future. So what are you going to do? Get rid of this whole scripting language? Make everyone have to write these bytecodes? I mean, if, if you have, if you're already developing the tools for this, 
I mean, you could, what are you going to do? Just get rid of the whole scripting language? That wouldn't be smart. But these new tools that you're building for this, for the bytecode stuff, they're going to have bugs too. My quote there in this story is exactly correct. This might be seem like a molehill, okay? But it's the molehill on the side of a gigantic fucking mountain that cannot be fixed. Oh my gosh. Ethereum is just getting worse and worse, and I cannot believe that it's not crashing in price. Um, let's take a look. Uh, I want to kind of go off script here and do something a little different than normal. Uh, let me check my notes here first. Okay, I have a couple other things I wanted to talk about. Or, yeah, a couple other things. Uh, I'm just going to go through the price charts and talk about the different altcoins. Uh, but this, I'm, I want to hit the Ethereum stuff a little bit more. And I have another story too. So, anyway, the ETH, Ethereum hash rate has crashed. It has absolutely crashed. After Zcash was launched, all of these... Uh, miners, they switched over to Zcash to mine instead of on Ethereum. 50% hash rate crash. And I mean, this, they, they forever, you know, they're always saying like, uh, oh, we want to make this ASIC resistant. We used an ASIC resistant algorithm on purpose because we want to make it sure that everybody can run a node. Well, guess what? Now they can jump ship. Because you didn't lock them in with ASICs. So they can go and mine whatever coin is more profitable. And you can get 51% attacked like that. I mean, this is a war. Proof of work is a war, man. And you think you're going to, like, that's the same. Oh, my God. That's the same argument with, like, people that um, want to take your guns away and things. Guess what? Some bad guy is going to have a gun. Some bad guy is going to have a giant mining rig and come in at 51% your network. You need to have these to have peace. The proof of work is a war and you need to lock in your hash rate. Anyway, um, that's interesting. To me, that's very interesting because that shows that's a window on, uh, a, a, a stealth war actually that's happening right around us all the time we don't even realize it at least people in in bitcoin and these altcoins and stuff all right the next one i want to talk about is wobull w o o bull.com he has a chart out about uh it's a visualization of 118 coins plotted over time and from their launch so they all share the y axis at their launch and let me bring this up so i can look at it um basically they all start and within like a, a thousand days of launch, they're dead. All altcoins are dead. And this shows that you cannot buy and hold altcoins. If you, that is a losing strategy, there is no exception at the thousand day mark for this. If you buy and hold, you are a loser. The only one that you can buy and hold is Bitcoin, period. That tells you something. I mean, that's a front in the war that right there. Bitcoin is the only one that has gone up in value consistently, or at least held its value, for God's sakes. And I, I've seen some other things come out, you know, where it's like a index fund of altcoins, and they 
do different weights and measures of, of altcoins. That's a losing strategy. The only thing you should buy and hold is Bitcoin. At least today, and this is 118 attempts that this guy did. And he said that was because I think there was a cutoff of uh, if they achieved a $250,000 market cap, he included them. So there's been 118 coins plus Bitcoin that has had a $250,000 market cap. And you put them on this and it looks like crap. He actually has this like kind of artistic canvas representation of it right at the top. And he calls it <laughs> shit, run, <laughs> shit runs downhill. And it's so funny because you have this glob of altcoins that looks like crap. And then you have this one beautiful chart line that comes out and that's Bitcoin. And I'm sorry, altcoin people out there. I'm really sorry, but this is not a winning strategy. The only way to win with altcoins is to day trade them, to babysit them, to day trade them, to get deep into it. But most newbies that come in are going to look at this. And they're going to be like, damn, I don't, I don't know all this day trading stuff. I don't even know how to read a chart. I don't know what all these moving averages and yada, yada, yada. They're going to just buy Bitcoin. That's what I would do. And these VCs that are funding all of these things, they're going to quickly find out. And they are finding out, I'm sure right now. Maybe this is why we've had the last, uh, almost, what is it? 12 months now of bull market because these VCs might be finding out, well, shit. My best bet is just to buy damn Bitcoin. Why do I need to fund these losers, uh, these loser companies that don't have any like revenue model? Uh, their business model is going to suck now that the blocks are full. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff. So yeah, the, the money should go into buying Bitcoin. And if you're a, a, a amateur investor, buy Bitcoin and hold it. Get yourself a hardware wallet of some sort and just put it on there and hold it and forget about it for 12 months. Come back, you double your money. Okay. Uh, all right. Speaking of that, it, it, VCs and altcoins, what's going on with Barry Silver? He invested in Zcash. So he got, went into these altcoin things. He got, invested in, uh, Ethereum Classic. I can see the ideological play here. I, I like, those choices from an ideological standpoint because Ethereum Classic was the more immutable, quote unquote, immutable chain and, um, uh, you know, with a better moral compass there. And Zcash is very, very similar to Bitcoin. I mean, it's a straight up clone of Bitcoin. If you go into the code, I mean, they didn't even rename the variables. They just cloned it straight up from Bitcoin. And initially, I think Zcash was supposed to be like a side chain or something. And so what they decided to do, oh, well, if we're making a side chain, let's just Copy the whole damn thing and launch our own currency, the whole damn network. So that's what they did. And Barry's getting in on that. The The only way to win in that strategy is to front run, right? Like Eric Voorhees and Shapeshift, uh, front run, be the whales that pump and dump. That's the only way to win in that, that scenario. And if that's what Barry Silbert's doing, uh, more power to him, but you're not going to earn respect doing that. And maybe you don't care if you walk away with several million dollars, but you know what? People know that about you now. So the the best strategy 
for VCs, the best strategy for whales, the best strategy for even the amateurs, the best strategy for brand noobs in coming into Bitcoin is buy Bitcoin and hold it. All right, let's the rest of this altcoinville. I'm just going to go through the charts here. Um, let's start with Ethereum Classic. Actually, let's start with Ethereum Classic. Uh, I'm using Crypto Watch. If you guys, um, I don't know, you probably all have your own charting stuff. I like Crypto Watch. Has a lot of the switching between coins is pretty easy, so I like that. But it doesn't have very good drawing. All right, let's go to, where would you say? Poloniex maybe is the Ethereum classic capital of the world. All right, so I'm going to shrink this down. I'm on the one hour and logarithmic scale. And man, it, okay, so it topped out at, well, I probably have to go farther back. Let me see. I think I'm, if I go the six hour. Okay, the highest that it got up to was, uh, 0 0.006 and now it's down to 0 0.001 and it doesn't seem to be stopping. I mean, it has a lot of room to go. It could go down another 50% pretty quick. Uh, I think it's going to just continue down in the same slope, maybe with some bumps along the road, but this is the exact same chart as all altcoins that you'll ever see. There's nothing unique here. There's nothing different. Oh man. Okay. So Ethereum classic, let's go to Ethereum. Same, same chart, uh, same settings here. We have, I think I got to put it on 12 hour. Let's see. Okay. If you, it, it had its big run up and now it is sitting on the support level. 0 0.01 Bitcoin per Ethereum. And it's probably going to break the support to the downside, especially, I mean, Bitcoin is ready to rally. And this chart looks very similar to the Ethereum Classic chart, where it peaks and then it slowly goes down. You can see in, let's see, March of this year, it peaked, Ethereum did, and then it had its uh, kind of return to normal peak in May. Where everyone's like, oh yeah, this is great, it's it's coming back. Nope, and then bam, it just goes down. And then you have this uh, disillusionment area. It's, it's going to go down further eventually. Um, I don't know why it would be $10, it should be $0.10, cents, like I've said in the past. But yeah, it's so it looks like uh, it's going to keep going down. It's ugly. If it breaks this support, I don't see anything lower there uh, everything is negative all the news is negative people are starting to go away from this smart contract bs and go towards like the fungibility and anonymity side which with mimblewimble and tumblebit really favors bitcoin so uh yeah there you have that what else let's look at zcash i haven't looked at them since a couple days after the launch I got to switch it to like one hour because they don't have any real history. Maybe. Oh, no, I got to go to like. Okay, I'm on the 15 minute chart because there's not very much history here. Uh, it obviously had that huge peak, but since then it is just been straight downhill. Um, I don't see any relief from this. I there in my mind, you have such a limited supply that. 
there's very little opportunity for people for this price to go up. It needs to have a use case. And it's still quite expensive per coin. I mean, it's a quarter of a Bitcoin. But I don't see that getting any better anytime soon. I mean, you'll have your blips. Um, maybe, maybe possibly in the future you get up to half a Bitcoin. But most likely it's just going downhill. There's no demand. Zero demand to use this coin. All right. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't very helpful. All right, let's do Dash because I have not really looked at dash at all one of my uh friends asked me about it the other day and so i did go back and look at it this was probably two weeks ago but dash is very similar it had a good run up oh this is the 15 minute i gotta go to the okay so dash languished for a long time no one was really caring about it it had a pretty successful like launch and then it trended down just like every other altcoin always does um it had the the Amanda B. Johnson effect where she switched over from doing uh, Bitcoin reporting and altcoin reporting like a news type thing to uh, being hired by the Dash team. So then you have this Amanda B. Johnson effect where you have a good saleswoman. You know, she's good looking. She knows her stuff pretty well. And so she can get eyeballs on the coin and sell it. But that is not the way that uh, cryptocurrency should get attention, right? It should get attention by uses, by people needing to use it. And um, also Dash, they so they claim to be like this anonymous coin, right? They got some bump off the anonymity thing, uh, interest. But then they signed this contract with like some beep, somebody in South America, some payment ATM, oh, it's ATM provider, I think, down in South America. And they're getting rid of all their anonymity anyway, because they got to KYC everyone that uses ATM. It's ridiculous. So they, and they are happy about that. I mean, they have no ideological um, connection anymore to the anonymity, dark, the roots of the coin. Because it used to be called dark coin, and that was a major aspect plus there's all sorts of weird stuff going on with like uh insta mines pre-mine um you know people evan duffield this has questionable um uh, motives and all this stuff i i think that this is probably going to go downhill i mean if you've been working on a project for god what is he's probably been doing this for two or three years evan duffield and you have not made any progress zero zero progress They've fiddled with their consensus stuff. They added some masternode stuff, instant transactions. Great, where's it got you? Nowhere. That's the same argument I have for Ethereum. These people have wasted two years of their productive lives on Ethereum BS, and now they're going to realize, damn it, I should have gotten on Bitcoin back in the day. I could have been building a Layer 2 solution and been one of the first to market with that. But I wasted my life on this. And that's the same thing I think is going to happen with, with Dash. Um, okay, so it doesn't look good. They peaked out in August of this year, and they've been downhill ever since. I mean, they're down 50% since their high. Um, they look like they've recently, in the last uh, week or so, they've had a little bubble, a little peak. But it's it's going down, and it doesn't look good, guys. All these altcoins, they're they're all basically the same chart. 
top left, bottom right. All right, Litecoin, because I, I still have a soft spot for Litecoin. And I think if you look at their chart, it actually, it doesn't look horrible. I mean, of course, you had the big spike. When was that? That was at their halving, right? Back in, um, that was back middle of last year. So that was almost a year and a half ago. They had their big spike up to almost $9. And that's pretty significant. Uh, then they had their little trough. But over the last year, it's been a slow trend upwards. And they have long-term holders. This is a very old coin. They have a long-term user base or not user base but uh, long-term people that have been mining and people that have been holding and they do have a use case as being kind of like the uh, backup to bitcoin or something like there's some sort of weird connection between litecoin and bitcoin Uh, you know it's a silver to the gold whatever Uh, but I, i have some soft spot for it and i think that it is looking decently healthy i mean if you look at all the other charts right like i said top left bottom right well this one it it has a huge spike uh, about 18 months ago and then it bottomed in over mo- over a year ago in in august of 2015 uh, and it's been slowly building this long base and going up even spiking up to 6 bucks here uh this year in june so it's similar at first glance top left bottom right but it has a little bit more um base built so i if i were to pick one one altcoin it might be litecoin it might be uh xmr which i'm going to talk about next but uh you know it's never going to replace bitcoin there's nobody really using litecoin but people have been holding it for a long long time and i've said in the past that the primary use case is holding and people hold because eventually it will be used not because it has current use cases uh but because of the eventual use cases so um you have to have long term holders for this stuff okay last one is xmr which is monero because i think this is a good one to see um they they've been around for a long time and they've been very very cheap you know several just a couple satoshis maybe like 10,000 satoshis or something like that for a long time then they started having some more traction and they got called in one of like it was alpha bay or one of the big darknet markets uh said they were going to start accepting it and boom it shot through the roof uh i think that's good for this coin that's probably good but i don't i don't see it retaining this value it might be useful this is one coin that might have some use case at least for the next eh, 12 months it might have some use case but uh it'll probably end up returning to its mean which is what less than half of the price that it is right now um, it had a big spike, and there's nothing on the chart here that tells me that it's going to uh, continue up. It's probably going to go down. But, I mean, if we do get a big wave of new Bitcoiners in here, maybe, maybe it takes off. Uh, they see this, they're like, oh yeah, I really, I think this is cool. There's that. So I would say Monero maybe, and Litecoin definitely has seems to have a different um, shape of chart. 
but everything else is the same exact chart. Even Ethereum, if you look at it from the perspective of you had a peak, then you had a, almost a return to normal-like peak after that, and it's been downhill. Featured article. Okay, the feature story for today is the India ban on their cash. Um, they, on the 8th of November, after some developments in the battlegrounds between Pakistan and India, they're fighting over this Kashmir region uh, that, that I've talked about in the past on the show. Uh, they decided to ban or switch up, I guess, the 500 and the 1,000 rupee notes. So, effective immediately, they were worthless. There was only a select few places that you could use them, which were like time sensitive to keep the economy going. Hospitals, you know, with the emergency rooms, airports, uh, train stations, uh, like some filling stations and things like that. Um, but that stopped yesterday, the 11th. I'm recording this on the 12th. So that stopped yesterday and, um, there was huge lines. You had to come in and turn in your rupee notes and get hundred rupee notes. Uh, they ran out of those, and there was big, big problems. I mean, lines down the street, people were camping out. And you can imagine, I mean, this country is 1.2 billion people, and it's mainly a cash economy. So this had uh, some major consequences. Uh, the 500 rupee note is about $7.50, and the 1,000 rupee note is about $15. Um they are the ones that you kind of carry around and use for everyday larger purchases. Like if you were to take a cab uh, across town, you would pay with a 500 rupee note. Um, the smaller purchases, you know, would be coins and things like that and the hundred uh, rupee note. But, um, these, these were major and these, these were the biggest denominations. So that's what people would save in. Uh, being a cash economy, people would stuff these under their mattress. Well, why did they do this? A lot of people were saying, oh, this is a war on cash. This is the war on cash. Look, this is another example of how they're trying to get us into their banking system. There was, There is some of that, I think, um, because a lot of people will turn in these um, mat this mattress money and not get it all back. So some of it will stay in the bank. But they're but they are issuing new notes. They're going to have new five hundred thousand, and then they're going to issue a two thousand rupee note in the near future. This was you can tell after you know they're having this war up there in the Kashmir region, and they're t sick and tired of terrorists paying for um, these uh, attacks on them with their own cash. So they decided to let's not have that cash anymore. Let's root them out. This has a lot of a lot of uh, far-reaching effects, though. It, it will cut down on corruption in politics. Uh, being a cash economy, you know, a lot of the politicians are paid off with cash, and and those thousand rupee notes are what most of your cash stockpiles are in. The kingpins, the drug lords, uh, they have big piles of money, and they aren't going to be able to trade it in as much as they you know to get uh, equal value for it. There were limits. Um, massive limits in the first couple days. And, and then there's, you can still trade in your notes 
up until the end of the year, I think. Um, but there are limits involved there too. So you can't just come in as a kingpin and, and turn it all in. You have to get registered. You have to KYC and all that. Um, so there's some, some things that could be taking, taken as a good thing. But what I see in this whole thing is that this is not your money. It's a hard truth that a lot of people don't want to see that this fiat paper money is not yours. It's slave money. They give it to you. You can use it while they say, okay, you can use it on what they say, when they say. And if they don't want to let you do that anymore, they take it away from you. That is not your value. That's your value on loan. Now, Bitcoin is not slave money. You actually own it and other people demand it. And I'm very surprised that India hasn't caught on more quickly to Bitcoin, especially being a lot of, you know, IT outsourcing there to India that you'd think people would want to get paid in that. Uh, and that, that will come, that will come, but it's not quite there yet. It is, however, I did look up on Google Trends, the search term Bitcoin in India, and it's just gone parabolic. At the end of last month, they had a, you know, on a national TV, kind of like I would say uh, 60 minutes or 2020, something like that in the U.S. Uh, it's a news pro, a national news thing. And they did a piece on Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? Said all about it. And it was in Hindi, so I couldn't understand it, but apparently it was pretty good. Um, a lot of people started searching out Bitcoin after that. And then now that we have this rupee thing, so it's just another big push for Bitcoin. A lot of people on Twitter were saying, um, hey, India, welcome to Bitcoin. Um, so take a look at that chart. I'll put it in the show notes. I put in a bunch of charts in the show notes to for you guys to, for your eye candy. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, this stuff is, to me, it, it just says one more time that um, this is not your money. This is the government money. If you want to be free and not be a slave to the government, you need to get Bitcoin or gold and silver. And gold is huge in India, um, but it's mainly a cash economy. It, it would be good for these people to just buy a little bit of Bitcoin. Buy a little bit of Bitcoin, and I'm sure they will. This Uno coin had some news recently. They're the big exchange now. They're like the Coinbase of India. And if you think about that, like... um Coinbase is one of the bigger companies, Bitcoin companies in the U.S. And just think at how much bigger the market is in India. This Uno coin could be become very big and very influential. So be watching out for them. Uh, it's kind of sad that it's Uno, you know, one, one coin, Uno coin, but they're a company. They're not a, they're not a cryptocurrency themselves. They're just a company like an exchange, like, uh, like Coinbase. Okay, so that's all I have for this story, guys. It's pretty big news. Uh, I'm sure we'll find out more about it in the future, but I, I did want to tie it into my previous reporting here on the war between India and Pakistan and what is going to be coming of that. Flashpoint. Okay, today on Flashpoint, we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, a Italy is again back in the news. They're 
their referendum is coming up. There's a bunch of new developments there, some very shocking developments, I, I would say. Uh, Saudi and Egypt, there's a shift there. You, the U.S. and Syria, uh, the U.S.'s stance on Syria post this Trump, uh, victory. And just an all, like a summation of what I see with the east to west sh- or west to east shift. Okay, so let's start off with, um, this is an article from Sputnik. I don't know if you guys ever read Sputnik news, but, you know, it's kind of like an RT spinoff, I think. Um, pretty good info though. I, I've, I've read lots of good stories on here, but the, the title of this story, Central Italian Businesses Ask Russia to Suspend Countermeasures to EU Sanctions. These, uh, couple Italian, like, regional, governors or whatever they call them over there, or they call them the president of the chamber of commerce of these regions. They wrote a letter direct to Putin saying, Hey, we will drop our sanctions on our side. If you drink, drop your sanctions. Totally sidestep in Brussels. Totally. I mean, this is like international news. I don't know why it isn't. This is huge. Um, there's been other, th- other, Places in Europe, like the German businesses, they're at odds with the German government because the most uh, foreign businesses in Russia come from Germany. Uh, there's billions of euros wasted there uh, with these sanctions. And uh, Scandinavian countries, they are big trade partners with Russia. I mean, this is just, it's getting bad. Russia doesn't need them. Russia's buddy-buddy with China and most of the Middle East, Iran, uh, Syria, Turkey... Um, you know, most of that central Asian part, uh, they, they sell all that natural gas to Europe. Uh, they're friends with the BRICS. I mean, they're the major player in the BRICS. So I just, I don't see how, uh, Russia needs any of the Western trade, but these Western countries need it desperately. You can tell here by this. Um, I'm going to read this, uh, excerpt from the letter that this guy sent, Alberto, what's his name? Alberto Drudi, he sent to uh, Russia. Quote, the cooperation of our business with our Russian colleagues is a very long, has a very long history. Over the last 20 to 30 years, we have been able to establish really very close ties, which became the economic reality. Our countries have long been working on the Russian market, and your entrepreneurs have come to Italy. Of course, the introduction of anti-Russian sanctions by Europe, followed by countermeasures from Russia, are detrimental to this cooperation, and we are not just talking about the need for their abolition. That's why we are we were considering the idea to at least suspend the sanctions, which are active on both sides, so both our and your businessmen could return to working together, as it used to be. I decided to turn to President Putin with this request, and my initiative was joined by the President of the Chamber of Commerce of Perugia. Holy shit. This is gigantic. To me, it's gigantic. Maybe I'm missing something here, but this is like small regions in Italy going straight to the Russian president to drop sanctions as if they can negotiate on the behalf of the EU. This is insane. And Italy has this referendum coming up. Don't forget, Italy is not gone. The banking problems in Italy are not gone. There's a referendum December 4th. Right after this whole Trump stuff simmers down, 
we're going to have this back into the European crisis again. And Italy could vote to restructure their entire government. It's not a vote on like leaving the, the European Union or leaving the Euro, but it could result in that. If they, if this, uh, Prime Minister Renzi, if he doesn't get his way, he said he's going to resign and the most popular party, up and coming party, just like the populace in the UK and the US and everywhere really that have been coming up. There's a populist party in Italy that's going to go back to uh, probably exit the Euro at, at the least, if not the entire European Union. And, and Prime Minister Renzi said he's going to call new elections if this does, this referendum doesn't pass. So either it passes and the whole government gets shooken up and maybe the Eurozone, maybe they come out, go out of the EU anyway, or the referendum doesn't pass and, uh, you know, they vote in a new populist government that does the same damn thing anyway. Pretty crazy times, uh, but Italy is not out of the news. We have a story from Zero Hedge, and it is, the headline is, uh, Seismic Shift to Middle East Regional Power. Saudis halt Egypt oil supplies as Cairo turns to Iran. Mid-October reported that for the first time ever, Russia and Egypt would conduct joint military drills. This followed news that Russia will sell attack helicopters to the North African nation and invest billions in Egyptian infrastructure. These items, along with the fact that Egypt is eager to be regranted Russian tourism rights for its citizens after recent bad blood between the countries, lead to the logical conclusion that Egypt has very has every incentive to cooperate with Russia going forward. It appears, however, that the quiet Egyptian pivot has not gone unnoticed by the U.S. and its Mideast allies. And on Monday, Saudi Arabia informed Egypt that critical shipments of oil products expected under a $23 billion aid deal have been halted indefinitely, which, according to Reuters, suggests a deepening rift between the Arab world's richest country and its most populous. So the richest being Saudi Arabia and the most populous being Egypt. Um, that's... I mean, this is getting really, really, really bad for the U.S. This ties into my next uh, story here, too, is... Let me pull it up. Right after Trump gets elected, so this is like the 9th or something of November, there is this article on the Washington Post, uh, Obama directs Pentagon to target Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, one of the most formidable... for fighting forces uh, or forces fighting Assad. So this is al-Nusra and Russia has been fighting them and the U S has been arming them. And now it's a complete 180. I have not heard this really reported very much. And what's that? Where's that going to leave Saudi and Qatar? Man, who knows? They're probably, I think Saudi and Qatar missed their opportunity to, to realign with, you know, the Chinese and the Russians. Because now after this, what are they going to do? After they've knowingly been funding all this terrorism and their efforts, they, they just lost like their biggest bargaining chip, which was this uh, al-Nusra, because the U.S. is going to bomb into oblivion. If the U.S. wanted to, the U.S. could bomb this, this, these fighters. It's, they make it out to be like super hard. But remember, the Russians came in there and in like 30 days, they 
stopped all of the oil shipments going into Turkey. They cut off the lifeline of all this Al-Qaeda in Iraq and in Western Syria just overnight almost. I mean, it was 30 days. U.S. could do it in half that time. They could totally crush this resistance in half that time. And even without boots on the ground. So this is just uh, a huge, huge pivot from the United States that has nobody is talking about. It doesn't seem like a pivot because, yeah, we're bombing Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra now. Whoop-de-doo. But guess what? We were funding and arming Al-Nusra. Now we're bombing them. It's like a 180 pivot. This is this new cycle. This it, uh, There's not going to be a lot. I, I feel like there's going to be less and less reporting out of this whole Syria thing, and it could wrap up within six months. Of course, I thought that back in uh, 2013-14. I thought, oh, this is this is getting over with. But it's still it's still raging out because the U.S. and Saudi and Qatar are funding these guys and training them. There was some some really there was a really odd death. I'll try to find that uh, link. There was an odd death in Jordan of three U.S. like special ops trainers where they were, you know, stationed at this Jordanian military post. And they had been there for a long time, tra- being trainers for these probably terrorists that they were sending into Syria. And all of a sudden, something happened. They tried to run a, like a gate at the military installation, or maybe they were just shot. I don't know. But these three guys were killed over there in Jordan. And that got reported nowhere. I think I saw one or two stories about it. Um, and that was on the heels of another similar incident that took place in that same sort of region. There, there are some major moves happening, and I think this whole thing might be winding down. Um, the U.S. resolve is definitely wavering here. Um, Especially with the Trump victory. Who knows where it's going to go. Maybe by, maybe Obama wants to end it by the time he gets out of the White House and he can claim that as like a big, you know, cap to his presidency. That he ended the fight in Syria and he's, that's what he's going to put on his, uh, little plaque. Who knows? Okay. So that's that, all that stuff. What else do we have? Um, I mean, if you, if you look at these, these three stories here with Flashpoint, you have the Italy <laughs> regions going to Putin directly. You have the Saudi and Egypt shift where Egypt is realigning. They see the freaking writing on the wall. They're going to Russia. They're realigning with Russia. Turkey is realigning with Russia. Greece is realigning with Russia. They have the Crimea. Uh, Italian city-states are revolting against the Italian government. Um, Scandinavia and Germany are in unrest. Uh, big uh, fighting, infighting over these, these sanctions. Um, you have Iran. Oh, my God. Just Russia. All of this is shifting to directly east. It seems like everything is shifting east. The Chinese just got in the SDR. Um, the Philippines are cussing out Barack Obama, like, live on air. Publicly saying, 
uh, Duarte, the, the prime minister, president, whatever over there, he was saying directly like calling Barack Obama lewd names. I don't remember what they were, but they were like bad names to be calling him. Saying, get the fuck out of my country, something like that. It's big. There's big uh, riots going on in South Korea right now. You have this Indian-Pakistan war heating up. India does the currency notes and stops the hundred and or five hundred and thousand rupee notes as a way to fight this terrorism and other corruption. I mean, all of these things are moving east, settling down these proxy wars, moving east, and it does not look pretty for the U.S. And Trump's going to come in here and try to be protectionist? Try to put up walls and bring jobs back to America? They're going to put up these protectionist uh, tariffs and all this stuff, and it's going to just crash the economy. I mean, it might not crash the economy overnight because we have all of these uh, monetary tools, but eventually those are going to run out. It might be a slow grind. Tariffs don't fix anything. And tariffs precede war, right? Tariffs always precede war. Because when, when goods don't cross borders, armies will. So it, it's getting... A lot of people out there might be on the fence or... They don't want to go down this conspiracy road. They don't want to go down this like geopolitical analysis road. They want to think everything is hunky dory. Uh, you know, there's butterflies and rainbows everywhere. I could, it could never happen here. Blah, blah, blah. And maybe they're right. I hope they are, but I freaking doubt it. You have to be ignorant to the past to believe that. So with Bitcoin, I think it's going to react favorably to all this stuff. And when this shift happens, I mean, it is slowly happening. But there is going to be a moment where it's like all of a sudden you feel the power shift from the U.S. and the West to Russia and China. And that's coming very very shortly. And when that happens, the, the dollars, it's going to drop drastically all these people are talking about going way over a hundred for the dollar the damn federal reserve will not raise interest rates and once people find that out the dollar is going to drop i'm not that worried about a strong dollar and hey if it goes up great i'd be able for more bitcoin That's a wrap for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. If you'd like to support the show, please do so at the new website, bitcoinandmarkets.com. There's a donate page. There is also where you're going to find all of the show notes. I put a lot of effort into the show notes with links and charts and all sorts of stuff. So um, please check that out and uh, tell me what you guys think about it. You can contact me on the website or on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.